Thank you for joining us, gentlemen. I am joined today uh, by Father Dwight Longnecker, uh, who is a author of numerous books. Uh, he speaks, um, very excellent speaker, I can attest. Uh, he is also a podcaster and a blogger uh, and writes uh, for a lot of different uh, Catholic outlets uh, on all different topics. So thank you so much for being with us, Father Langlinger. Glad to join you. Good to see you again, too, or uh, listen to you anyway. I can remember we had we met in Oklahoma and um, had a nice drive to the, you took me to the airport, which had a nice conversation about all sorts of stuff. That's right. It was, it was a, a memorable conversation. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I'm here to talk about uh, your new book, which in a lot of ways is unique and even provocative. The title is just, awesome immortal combat uh confronting the heart of darkness uh, what a great title as a as a uh, a millennial who grew up playing mortal combat at uh, <laughs> chuck e cheese um uh, i can appreciate the uh, epic nature of the title uh, but really it is fantastic title and it really speaks to um the reality of what's going on in the world today um there is a, a spiritual combat going on and it seems to be intensifying day by day uh -huh. um but uh you know i want to talk about what inspired you to write this book because it, it is it is uh quite unlike a lot of the other books out there right now which can tend to be for lack of a better word very left brain very uh analytical very uh theological but this is just like a series almost of cool word pictures strung together but not just cool they're they're true and they're real um but they're very evocative um very powerful imagery that you use throughout the book um but we'll, we'll get into that but i, I just want to read a a paragraph from the introduction which is really stirring uh it says immortal combat means wrestling with the monsters of the deep it is the way of a Christian Hercules who slaughters the Hydra with sword and fire. This way of the Christian warriors is summons to all the baptized to first of all ponder the dread curse of evil and the full victory of the cross, then to turn from our downward path and take up that cross and follow Jesus Christ, victim, victor, and king of the universe. Um, and really, that, that's, a, that's just an amazing paragraph, but it really summarizes the, the tenor of the whole book which is one of uh epic struggle uh so what what inspired you to to write this book well um one of the things is and i, I put this in the at the beginning is a struggle with religious language um as a, as a writer i'm always uh you know wrestling with words and communication and one of the things which holds us back as christians is i think we're we have a real problem in that we're talking about a um a stone age religion in the space age uh, and that is we use language and concepts which were come to us from thousands and thousands a culture thousands and thousands of years ago and specifically i'm talking about the culture of sacrifice so um you know we will hear evangelical christians say uh, jesus died to save you from your sins you need to get saved and jesus died to save you and and if they go to a catholic church we hear people say 
um, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Or if you listen to Mass, the priest says, this victim, this spotless victim, this immaculate victim. Uh, and so the language of sacrifice is just running through um, our religion. And I, I have sympathy for uh, modern people who would say, what are you talking about? You know, what is this thing about blood sacrifice? We don't, we don't do that anymore. I mean, you know, we, we don't cut open sheep and pull out their intestines to, to prognosticate the future. And we, we don't offer full burnt offerings after pulling out their kidneys and offering them up on the altar to almighty Yahweh. We, you know, we have iPhones. <laughs> yes. Right. You know? and, and so I, and then, then if they push it, they might very well say, and when you Catholics talk about, behold the Lamb of God, you're talking about a human sacrifice here. And this is even more shocking. Um, you know, we're talking about Aztecs and primitive people who like that, um, you know, that second Indiana Jones movie where, where <laughs> the, the, the guy pulls out the guy's still beating heart and go Kali Ma and all that stuff. Um, right. And I think if people say, you know, what is this about? What are you talking about? This is not what we do. Um, I'm sympathetic to that, those critiques. And so, um, but the, the modernist uh, reaction over the last 150 years or so in theology and church circles has been, yeah, you're right, actually, this, this blood sacrifice talk, this is outmoded, superstitious, Stone Age stuff. Um, we're going to quietly sort of downplay that and put that in, in, in um, grandma's attic. And we're going to talk about religion being uh, all about a family meal and getting together uh, for fellowship and, and learning how to gather and, and change and make the world a better place. And, um, you know, we don't want to hear all that blood sacrifice stuff. So, but of course, that is not really religion. It's just kind of like the Girl Scouts or something, you know. And, and so I wanted to go back and say, look, no, th this, this thing about sacrifice is actually more important than ever before, but we need to understand it. So I've dug into the works of René Girard, um, who's written, the French thinker who's written a lot on the, the scapegoating mechanism, uh, and another philosopher, Max Scheller, who writes about resentment uh, and so forth, as well as Nietzsche, and um, tried to make all of that accessible to uh, the ordinary guys that I would speak to at a Catholic men's conference. So, um, well, you're one of those ordinary guys, Sam. Did I work? Did I, did I succeed? Yes, I think you did. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, how, how our culture is just completely detached from a sacrificial religious system or really any religious system at all. I mean, it's, uh, we have all of our, our symbols, our language, our religious language, um, our rituals, our liturgies, they've all been stripped to uh, the point of meaninglessness now where... Yeah, yes, uh, and even, even the concept of sacrifice, we have kind of watered it down to make it mean, well, you need to sacrifice a bit more of your time and serve at the food at the soup kitchen. Well, <laughs> okay, but that's not really what sacrifice... Real, I mean, that is a, a spinoff of sacrifice, but sacrifice is still talking about the death of our Lord Jesus Christ in which a naked man was tortured on the cross um, mm -hmm. after being beaten to an inch of his life. And he did this for the sins of the world. And unless we grapple with what that really means, we're not really grappling with Christianity. Yes, exactly. And, and, and you know, the, the world today looks at Christianity and they say, 
you know, look, there's, there's a lot of suffering in the world uh, already, you know, uh, and people are very cognizant of that thanks to the media and uh, social media and that sort of thing. Um, but they're like, when they look at sacrifice, they seem to think, why add more suffering? Like, why, why do I have to sacrifice? Why did Christ have to sacrifice? Why, why, it just seems like more meaningless suffering. Like, uh, how would you respond to that? Well, the thing is, every world religion uh, and philosophy, bottom line, I, I like bottom line solutions. Yeah. Bottom line is trying to struggle with the question of suffering. Yes. Okay. Um, the, uh, for instance, the, the Eastern religions will basically, like Buddhism, will basically say, you know, um, if you need to rise above it uh, you, through meditation or whatever, you, you, need to, you need to rise above it. Forget uh, the material world and you will forget your suffering. Um, some other religions say, well, if you're suffering, it's your fault. You or your parents did something wrong. We find that in the Gospels. Remember where the boy, man was born blind and people said, yes. you know, did he, was he, did he sin or did his parents? And Jesus says, no, that's not the answer. Um, and, uh, you know, the Stoics in, in Greek philosophy said, again, just try to live a noble life. You're going to suffer, but stiff upper lip, try to bear it uh, and be noble. Uh, and the Epicureans said, yep. Yeah, live eat drink and be merry for tomorrow you die you're going to die you're going to suffer but uh while you're not just try to enjoy things because um it's just around the corner uh so none of these answers are actually satisfactory and it's only christianity that says suffering actually has meaning suffering is redemptive and we're not looking for suffering but will cause suffering but we go when we go through it there is not just the light at the end of the tunnel there is eternal light at the end of the tunnel it's called resurrection uh, and so therefore this paschal mystery as we call it is is the only world religion which actually deals with suffering and and deals with it at the very heart of the whole matter um, not just as a kind of extra theological argument it's right there and that's why in a catholic church with the um the rules of our, our catholic church say a prominent image of our lord crucified must be placed in every church you know not the empty yep. cross you see in protestant churches but a, a crucifix yes yes as there is a sense in which redemptive suffering is at at the heart of christianity not just suffering for suffering's sake but uh suffering for the purpose of uh, redemption and restoration um, and, and healing. Um, but I want to return to the way in which you wrote this book, which is very interesting. There's so many um, powerful images from um, mythology, from pop culture, um, from, from literature, all just kind of strung together in um, one short punchy chapter after another. Um, and there's, uh, there's references to, you know, terrifying beasts and, and, uh, uh, and even the cover, again, as, as a millennial in high school, I would have described the cover as gnarly, you know, like <laughs> it, just, it just grabs your attention. Um, but what was, what was the purpose of that? I mean, is this all just kind of uh, rhetorical excess, you know, are you just trying to kind of st stimulate people's imaginations to, just to, to keep them turning the pages or is it... Is it is there reality to these images? I mean, are, are there is is the situation we're in really that terrifying? 
Yeah, you know, one of the problems with theological language in our culture is that we've we've fallen into two extremes. On the one extreme is subjectivism and emotionalism, where religion is just, well, whatever you wish to believe, and did you have a wonderful experience when, when you went to that hallelujah church or when you sat on a hillside and meditated in nature? Um, it's all subjective and emotional. And on the other hand, are those who have reacted against that and made their religion with this sort of dry intellectual apologetics argument the whole time, you know, and digging into scholasticism and Thomism and these abstruse theological texts and, and, and liturgical regulations and all the rest. And uh, I'm not against either of those, but um, on their own, they're in, unsatisfactory. And, and so I've tried to use the imagery uh, from myth and literature and popular culture, um, TV and film and whatever, to you open the doors of my reader's imagination because the imagination uh, is also when we open the door to our heart. And therefore I've deliberately used strong language and strong imagery um, to kickstart the imagination so that it might really, um, you know, give people kick in the pants and, and engage their emotions uh, to make change happen. So th yeah, there's a, a method to my madness. Yeah. Yes. And, and, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned, you know, the, the imagination being kind of the portal to the heart, but I mean, I think I would say that among a lot of Catholics who look at the world today, they would say, Oh, there's, there's too many undisciplined emotions out there right now. There's too many uh, people relying on, on images. You know, there's even like a dictatorship of the image, you know, I've heard before. And so we just need to return to almost pure, analytical reason almost like that seems to be their proposed solution is like you said just just throw the summa at everybody um get them you know we don't even forget the fact that we we don't have the mental tools to understand the summa in the way that it was originally intended to be understood most of the time um but 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 that seems to be the solution is just quote uh arguments from the summa and or not not that there's anything wrong with the summa it's it's been highly praised by many saints and popes but but i'm but i my point is that a lot of people seem to think that imagination emotion any of those things dangerous so the alternative is pure reason pure theology canon law um you know all of these things but almost approach catholicism in a scientific way that's objective and yeah. has no well, tint of emotion. this is what i'm getting at if it's if it's pure objective theology and abstruse theology, uh, it is all head. If it's all emotion, it's all heart. But it is possible to put these two together. In fact, uh, in my book, I'm drawing on some very um, intellectual um, work, the the thought of René Girard, who's a very profound and uh, thinker and an exhaustive writer on this particular area of uh, human culture and psychology and and uh, the, the interactions and the dynamics of evil, and also the philosophy of Max Scheller, who was a German philosopher um, just one generation after Nietzsche, who was a Catholic and very often would correct Nietzsche. Scheller was very instrumental in the thought, for instance, uh, of phenomenology, with, um, which was the, the, the philosophy of uh, philosophical work of Edith Stein and, and um, uh, St. Edith Stein and St. John Paul II. So Scheller is a, a, a figure who's not very well known, but what I'm getting at here is um, 
I did a lot of research, a lot of thinking, and a lot of uh, real content, intellectual content, if you like, but I've, I've presented it in a way which is accessible uh, and also presented in a way which I think is, um, touches the emotions and, and, the and the imagination as well as the intellect. Yes, yes. So, you know, you mentioned uh, the first half of the book is just kind of laying out the stakes, the battle that we're facing, the kind of encroaching uh, darkness um, that uh, is, is seeking to destroy the church, destroy each of us. Um, can you just kind of elaborate some of the, the uh, challenges that we face in the modern world that you tried yeah. to describe? Yeah, uh, in the first half of the book, I'm really trying to answer the question, what is the sin of the world? When we say Jesus died to take away the sin of the world, well, what is the sin of the world? And because over the last 150 years, along with this modernism, uh, we've tended to downplay sin and not preach about sin, therefore people have a very poorly formed conscience, and they think that sin is really just the naughty things they've done. And, and then when I hear confessions, I can almost hear people's, gear, the gears of their brain on the other side of the screen grinding as they're trying really hard to think of something bad to confess. Because they've been conditioned to think that sin is really only, well, um, you know, I looked at dirty pictures, you know, and I, I, I did something impure with myself and I lost my temper when my wife didn't do the dishes, you know, and, uh, 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 uh. and so they're thinking of the, the sordid and the thing, naughty and things they've done, this, things they're ashamed of, which is fair enough, which is good, which is sin. But I try to dig deeper with that and then say, look, the sin of the world is not just that. The sin of the world instead is this, um, pervasive network of deceit uh, and lies which generate originally from pride uh, and from the assumption that I am right um, and of course I'm right and that's not even worth challenging I'm right and out of this this pride comes um, all sorts of other evil things the deceit the cover-up the the self-deception the lies, um, the abuse, and everything else that flows from that. So um, this is what I'm digging at, is at the roots, I'm digging at the roots of the sin of the world, because when you understand that and how that operates in the world, this system of deceitfulness and lies um, eventually focuses on somebody who must be at fault, and that person who is at fault eventually becomes the scapegoat, and that person will be excluded, will be vilified, and eventually will be um, murdered. And and this is what we see happening on Passion Week. We have we see this happening to our Lord Jesus Christ. And he he takes on this whole dynamic of evil, this this sick sort of system, um, and defeats it from the inside out. That's right. And you you know I. You talked about you know our our culture's problem with sin, the world's problem with sin, and and wanting to ignore that, and yet um, as we look around at the world, uh, including a lot of events happening right now, it's strange because on the one hand people say, well, sin doesn't exist; we're all fundamentally good, and on the other hand, we are flagellating ourselves, you know, self-loathing, self-hatred, you know, stumbling over ourselves to confess our cultural sins, never personal sins, of course, but, but cultural sins. Um, 
you know, why is that? What is wrong with us? You know, we've, we've externalized you know, sin and made it a systemic thing and, and ignored our personal responsibility. Yeah, what's happening in the protests of the summer of 2020, which we're, hopefully we're coming out of the other side of, but um, what's interesting about this is that, yes, uh, an awful lot of people are, are facing uh, the horror of sin, <laughs> uh, racism, police brutality, the ugliness of this, and they're owning up and they're saying, yes, this is part of our society. This is horrible. But I'm afraid what's happening more often than not is just what I said. They're blaming other people. So mm -hmm. uh, I see in the protests, I, I want to believe that thousands of people are saying, yeah, racism is terrible, police brutality is terrible, violence is terrible, and I'm part of the problem. But I fear that instead, thousands of people are protesting and saying brutality is horrible, violence is horrible, racism is horrible. All those people out there are guilty. Yes. And as long as that is going on, and that's the mindset, nothing's going to change. Nothing's right. going to change because that, that, in fact, it'll get worse because that system of blame of others will perpetuate the whole cycle of violence. Um, it's just that the violence might be directed towards other people. There might be new victims. So this is what my book's about. And so it's very relevant. And it, and it, um, it, it comes back in the end to each one saying, yeah, there's a huge problem. I'm staring it uh, right in the face uh, and I'm part of the problem. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I, 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 one of the quotes that has just, just lodged itself uh, in my, my mind and heart that is from uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn in the Gulag Archipelago. He talks about, wouldn't it be wonderful if evil was always out there, you know, but then he says, gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either but right through every human heart and through yep. all human hearts. Absolutely. And I think that's, if there's going to be a cultural change, it will have to start with each one of us taking responsibility and, and owning up to our sins. It does. Uh, and, but the reason this is difficult is what I go into in my book is that we actually deny that this is true. And, and part of the whole system of deceit is that we lie to ourselves that I'm not like that. Yeah. That right. See the evil, but that's not me. Yes. I'm a good person. I'm a nice person. I, I wouldn't do that. Um, but if you take the example of this police brutality, uh, how many of us under the same pressures that a policeman would be under every day, day in, day out, stressful pressures, how many of us would, wouldn't eventually snap in one way or another? No, I'm not excusing police brutality. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying that if we think that the level of brutality and violence is not part of us, then we haven't really probably been under very much stress. And soldiers in, 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 in wartime uh, will tell you, hey, I, I thought I was a peaceful guy. You know, I thought I was a, a peace-loving, calm, controlled person. Uh, a buddy of mine says this. He was in the Iraq War. He said, I was a, a laid-back kind of guy. But when that enemy came over the, the battlements, um, throwing grenades i was an animal man and you know he explains that yeah this violence is there uh in all of our hearts 
Yes, yes. And I think the only way we, we uh, can delude ourselves into thinking it's not true is because we don't know ourselves very well. There, we, there's no space in our culture for self-reflection. I mean, we were just consumed by... Yeah, and it's no coincidence uh, that these riots and um, protests, uh, yes, they, they, were, they were kicked off by and sparked by the violence, the police brutality in Minnesota. But um, there's also an element in which it's no coincidence that this has all burst out after the uh, the coronavirus lockdown, in which yes. a lot of people were having were forced to spend time on their own and forced to 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 look mortality in the eye. Yes, because people were at home saying, "Hey, this is serious. I might get sick and die. My loved ones might get sick and die," yes. and that led, that led to a corporate level of stress in our society, which I think people underestimated. Um, yes that that corporate level of stress was there and the corporate level of panic was there. And so mm. when, when the sort of um, ex escape valve went off with this uh, race problem, boom, you know, we had this on our hands. Uh, it, it's all very, and this is all part of, again, what I'm talking about in the book, about the sin of the world, how this is woven into who we are and, and where we are. Yes. Yeah. yeah and I, um, I want to, uh, continue that thread in a different way however um there's one chapter uh in in your book that you started off talking about um speaking to an exorcist and culturally it's fascinating we're we're, we're kind of still mesmerized by exorcists <laughs> and you know the movies obviously are always play on this uh but also among catholics i've been hearing more and more catholics talking about well this exorcist said and this uh, you know this other exorcists told me this and you know there's there seems to be a um again just an attraction to uh these individuals and i'm curious what you would say is our cultural as well as catholic fascination with exorcists well for me it's part of a bigger issue and that is the issue that people understand deep down that religion is about an encounter with the supernatural. It's, an, it's right. about an encounter with God. It's about an encounter with angels and demons and the real, and the afterlife and, and, and heaven and hell and all the rest. That's what religion is about. That's what religion has always been about from the beginning in the primitive religions and so forth. It's always been about mankind, sometimes in very horrible ways with occult practices and witchcraft and, and, and necromancy and all sorts of weird stuff paganism and it's religion is about an encounter with the other side and again in the modern religion uh, version of christianity we have done the best uh, the, the theologians and church leaders have done the best they can to actually take that out completely they, they've cut it out like somebody would cut rust out of an old jalopy we don't you know we don't want that anymore and they've turned religion into this sort of somebody's coined the phrase therapeutic um, moralistic deism. They've turned it into this religion of good works uh, and making yourself a better person. And maybe there's a God out there somewhere on the other side of the clouds, but he's probably having a nap. Um, and, but, but that's not what religion, that's, that's, that's the Rotary Club. You know, th th that's not religion. Religion is an encounter with the supernatural. And that's why um, people are, are fascinated by horror films by fantasy films because fantasy films always involve the, the a magical element uh, that's why they're interested in harry potter and lord of the rings and 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 made the matrix and all this 
stuff, uh, superhero movies, you could go on and on. They're interested in the supernatural. And when it comes to the Catholic faith, they're interested in exorcism because that seems to be the one place where we still talk about the supernatural. In fact, every encounter with the Catholic faith ought to be an encounter with the supernatural. <laughs> the sacraments are an encounter with the supernatural. Well, that's what our faith teaches, what we're supposed to believe. But of course, that's all been watered down and it's all been forgotten. And, and you know, the Eucharist, this great mystery has been turned into a happy meal. Um, and, and confession, which should be this gut-wrenching encounter with God's forgiveness, is turned into a little therapy session. Um, you really got me on my soapbox now, Sam, but you... <laughs> But this is, you know, this is what I'm talking about. And, and this is why exorcism is um, fascinating for people. I'm convinced because they know deep down that this is what religion is supposed to be about. Uh, and churches are emptying because it's, it's, it's not about religion anymore. You know, the, the people wake up and they say, why do I need to go to church and on early on a Sunday morning and sing bad hymns and listen to some questionable person up there, you know, giving me... <laughs> a talk that I, I could probably gain from a Hallmark's greeting card. Um, if I want to change the world, I can join the soup kitchen without going to church on Sunday. And they're right. Yep. That's right. Yeah. And, and um, you know, I think it was uh, Chesterton who talked about, you know, in his conversion, his own personal conversion, he was kind of teetering on the brink of nihilism as a young man, um, you know, just despair kind of looking into the void. And then he, uh, he encountered um, a guy who, who, you know, uh, claim to be able to you know introduce him to uh the supernatural through the dark forces <laughs> essentially the the devil um and that's actually what convinced chesterton to convert yeah there, uh, there's Morgan. actually also a really good um short story by graham green and i i've lost track of it but i, I remember reading it and he he weaves it together really beautifully and this this guy's sitting on a train and this this mysterious person comes in in black and sits across from him and th th this guy is who's a total non-believer is kind of um really thrown for he feels uncomfortable by this guy dressed in black and this guy dressed in black begins talking um about uh various spooky stuff and then ends up talking about demon possession and exorcism and then he takes his scarf on a scarf off and it's revealed his dog his clerical collar is revealed and um the man in the train, the stranger in the train says, and this is why I became a Catholic. Um, you know, in other words, he encountered a man who, who took the supernatural seriously uh, and was engaged in this battle that, that, that my book is all about. Yes, yes. So just to um, switch gears a little bit, the solutions, the second half of the book is very, very much um, okay, this is the battle that we're facing. What can we, uh, how can we start to engage in this battle? How can we start to yeah. bring change? Well, first of all, the, 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 the battle is won on, at the cross of Jesus Christ. And I explain how that integrates and, and, and shown through how the sin of the world is defeated. And if that's the answer, then I say the answer of the Christian life is to live the cross day by day. And of course, this is all through the, old, the New Testament. St. Paul says, uh, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I, I die daily. Um, we preach Christ and him crucified um, and so forth. And St. Paul is trying to get hammer home to us what Jesus also said, take up your cross and follow me, that um, the Christian life is a matter of living the victory of the cross in our lives. Um, 
And all of the religious things that we go through, the devotions and our worship and everything else, is a way to do that. It, it's, it, it is the method by which we make the cross alive in the world, the victory of the cross alive in the world. And um, so the second half of the book is, is saying, right, let's roll up our sleeves and, and get on with it. Uh, and this is how we do it. Yes, yeah, so, and, that, and that very much um, begins on a at a personal level, but but uh, is you know is is that is that something that can bring cultural change? I mean, we look around and just Christians a lot of times. I at least I hear and uh, feel at times, but it's just you. Just, oh man, there's we're in a losing battle. There's just so many forces of darkness out here. You know, it's just overwhelming. How can we ever? How can we ever? You know, establish the kingdom of God. Yeah, how can we ever? You know. Um, bring people into that kingdom and, and into a relationship with Christ? How can we do that? So, you know, is this, is this just about, you know, us as individuals, um, which is, was very much my mentality as a Protestant, um, or is this something that is a little more corporate? You know, um, last night, uh, my wife and I watched a really uh, obscure, but really interesting film called Still Life. Uh, it's a nice, quiet English film and uh, to sum it up really briefly, it is um, about a very quiet, shy man whose job it is to track down uh, the re relatives of people who have died, people, people who've died, who died alone. And he's a very sort of bookish, shy, insignificant person. But he takes his job seriously, and we see him through the film tracking down person, the relatives of person who died and listening to their stories and finding out why the person died alone. And at the very end, well, I can't give it away. I can't give a spoiler. It's a wonderful little ending, which shows that the God's work is done by the small people, by the insignificant people. And this is one of the points I make in the second half of the book, that God's work is always done small and begins small and is insignificant. He, he doesn't make headlines. His servants don't make headlines. And yet, in eternal terms, they pay big dividends. Now, some of them make headlines because it's God's will for them to do so, somebody like Mother Teresa. Um, but I can remember a missionary to India telling me, you know, he said, I've spent 45 years working in India. He said, there are many Mother Teresas. Um, and I thought that was really beautiful because God chose her to have this international um, profile, you know, because he wanted her to. But this missionary in India said, actually, there are many Mother Teresas, many, many people who are serving in quiet ways, actually making a huge difference. And I think we all do well, would do well to tune off, the, turn off the screen, turn off the local media, the media, turn off the bad news, and begin to focus on the, the stuff that's happening that's real, that's local, uh, and that is changing lives. And remember, um, one life changed might be the person that goes on to change the world. So um, I, I'm an optimist. I'm, I'm never too pessimistic about the state of things. Yes, uh, I uh, I tend to be more melancholic and can uh, fluctuate wildly from time to time between optimism and discouragement. Um, but uh, I, I have a quote on my wall. I don't think it's actually in Lord of the Rings. I'm rereading the books right now, so I'm looking out for it. <laughs> it says, I have found that it is the small everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keep the darkness at bay, small acts of kindness and love. That was Gandalf. And um, I think that's so true. You know, we, we want the big, 
noisy headline grabbing uh, campaigns and movements. That's not what changes the world. And you know, especially when we're looking at a spiritual battle, God's economy is entirely different um, than man's economy. And you look at, um, you know, even the, the story of the widow's mite, you know, in the gospels where, you know, she put in one little coin and it was worth way more than all of the massive donations that uh, the priests and the, the scribes and Pharisees donated. Yeah, yes. And this is actually the core message of the entire story of sacred scripture. Look, Jesus chooses, God chooses the Hebrews, a wandering tribe of nomads uh, in the midst of the great Egyptian civilization, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, all those great and mighty civilizations. They came, they went, they came, they went. Guess what? The Jews are still here. <laughs> and Walker Percy brings this out. Uh, he has a character who keeps pondering this and saying, I, I thought I had everything figured out. He says, but the mystery of the world, he says, is the Jews. Uh, and he goes back. And, and so this is part of my point as well, that God always uses the little guy, um, the hidden person. He uses the, a, a peasant girl in, in, in Nazareth. And, and the time Nazareth at the time of Our Lady's um, life was, was just a collection of two, you know, a handful of farm buildings. You know, it was a little squalid outpost uh, in, in the countryside. And that's where God chooses to do his work. Um, and this is the story of great literature. And I bring this out. This is Frodo, you know, the Hobbit going on his, his little, his wonderful um, quest. Um, it's always the little guy who, who defeats the, the, the big baddies. So, yeah, that gives me hope. Yes, yes. There's, there's nothing insignificant in, in God's economy. There's nothing uh, wasted, even the smallest acts of, of charity and uh, kindness. So uh, in conclusion, though, um, you know, if there's one, one takeaway you could leave people with from this book, um, and I recommend that everyone get it because it is such a delightful read, short chapters for our modern uh, attention spans. Uh, I think goldfish have bigger attention spans than us that they've discovered. Um, but it, it's short, engaging chapters. But what, if there's one thing you could leave people with, what would it be? I, I, I really want uh, people to um, be knocked outside their box of complacency and, and uh, um, conformity to see themselves and see the world uh, in, a, in a radically new way uh, and hoping that that will change people's perspectives and then, therefore they'll take action. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Father Longnecker. I, I truly, again, recommend this book, uh, Mortal Combat, Confronting the Heart of Darkness. Get it wherever good Catholic books are sold. Um, but uh, I, I think if it's... I could, Sam, sorry, before we go, if I could also make a plug. Um, yes. I'm helping to lead a Catholic men's conference in July, an online Catholic men's conference. I think you might, you've been invited to take part. That's and right. uh, we just say to our to the listeners out there, you know, it's run by smart Catholics. It's called Immortal, Immortal Combat, Living the Victory. And, um, you know, maybe you can help to promote that as well, Sam, as you're taking part. Absolutely. And um, could you share with us your website and blog as well? Yeah, it's just DwightLongenecker.com. Uh, and I'm blogging there and um, uh, podcasting. I'm just about to start a YouTube channel, which is called Myth, Mystery, Myth Monsters and the Mysteries, 
uh, hoping to segue on some of this stuff that I've been talking about. Outstanding. Well, check it out, everyone. Um, thank you so much for being with us, Folio. Thank you.